This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Uh, good evening. Those of you who are joining us uh, in, from your own homes online, and good evening, everybody in the house here, um, gathered in the lovely Southboro Libri Library. Um, I will begin just by flagging next week's lecture. Um, my handsome and very strong husband will be uh, lecturing on the Apostle Paul, our mother in Christ, metaphors, ministry, and masculinity. So, get ready. Um, but tonight, we're talking about paradox be a good setup for a conversation about metaphors next week, Joshua. Uh, the importance of paradox, poetry, prayer, and the life of Simon Peter. Well, I have heard tell that in coming through and out of his own crisis of faith, Francis Schaeffer wrote several poems I haven't read those poems. I don't know if anyone in uh, Libri has come across those. I don't remember where I read that or heard that, so I hope it's true. But the point is, um, though I haven't read those poems, I have received an inheritance of Francis Schaeffer's poetic sensibility through one particularly visual and evocative phrase from his teaching used to describe how we are to understand what it means to be human. Glorious ruins. We are all glorious ruins. By nature of being created by a good God in his good image, we are glorious. By nature of being fallen, of being, as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the church in Rome, under the power of sin, we are a ruins. The evidence of our glory can still be seen. A former glory is not utterly obscured, but the marks of decay, inattention, something lost, is also evident. We are not all or only glory. We are not merely ruins. If we were to think one over the other, we would miss the paradox and lose touch with reality. We are glorious ruins. 
rock like Simon Peter, who Jesus also called a stumbling stone, was a glorious ruin. So my hope for tonight is that we will grow in this appreciation for this particular paradox of being a glorious ruin and that we will reflect um, more widely on why paradox is so central to Christian theology and experience. Our world needs, as it has always needed, people and communities and leaders who can hold disparate and seemingly contradictory truths together and find ways forward. Well, there are many different types of lectures, and one of the things I love about Labrie is the the wide variety of topics and styles that you get from Labrie lecturers. Um, There are journey lectures that start in one place and take us perhaps on a meandering path to a new place. And there are book review and idea report lectures that offer helpful briefings and interpretive responses um, to influential thinkers. And there are tour guide lectures that lead you through storied corridors of old thought castles, telling you why the people pictured in the portraits are important. Well, I have been thinking of this lecture as a door-knock dinner lecture. (laughs) Kelly. (laughs) Kelly was telling me about this British, British cooking show? American cooking show? Okay, all right. (laughs) This, This cooking show where a chef shows up at your door and makes you a meal with whatever you have in your kitchen, which sounds amazing. Well, I am thinking of myself um, as something like the chef at the door, but unlike in the show, I have brought a basket of some key ingredients with me. Um, The main ingredients I'm bringing to this evening are lessons that I am learning from reading and writing poetry Reflections on the experience of praying, close readings of gospel passages involving Simon Peter, and five of my own poems reflecting on those moments um, between Peter and Jesus. Um, Of course, little to no culinary magic can happen without fire, and it is therefore my prayer that the Holy Spirit will be the real creative presence in our midst, taking what I've brought and reaching into each of your pantries or uh, spice cabinets or even your deep freezer um, to prepare a feast for us tonight. So let's pray for that. Come Holy Spirit, we do invite you to um, bring some heat 
some creative heat, and most certainly light to our time together this evening. Would you take the words that I have prepared and um, translate them into uh, the language of each heart and mind here, and would, um, would, would true, truly helpful meaning um, be made here tonight? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, it doesn't hurt to start with some definitions. So, what does paradox mean? What is a paradox? What makes something paradoxical? Well, uh, Merriam-Webster gives us this much. A paradox is a statement or a situation that seems, but need not be, self-contradictory. To this, we can add some etymological insight. Paradox is from the Greek, para, which actually has several meanings, but with this, um, para means contrary to or beyond, uh, doikin, to think, which can also be um, translated as to believe or an opinion. So does the paradoxical take us beyond thinking or past thinking? Um, Is a paradox contrary to thinking or just contrary thinking? The etymology of the word would yield this definition. A paradox is a statement that is seemingly absurd, but really true. And the inimitable and endlessly quotable G.K. Chesterton, who has been called the Prince of Paradox, has defined paradox as truth standing on her head to get attention. Well, a paradox shows us the limits of our thinking. It also gives parameters to our thinking. It exposes our propensity to be wary of that which we cannot control and define by means of pure reason. To practice paradox or practice with paradox is not a cop-out in the face of difficult questions or seemingly competitive realities or a shrinking from intellectual rigor it may actually be an antidote to intellectual rigor mortis. To practice paradox is actually a way of training ourselves in humility, a way to learn to bow, again, as Schaefer imaged it, as limited and dependent creatures before an immeasurable awesome and self-sufficient God. Paradox is more than important. It is essential to Christian orthodoxy. In his essay on the early Christian heresy, Arianism, which denied the full divinity of Jesus Christ, Michael Thompson writes this, 
upholding both the full humanity and deity of Jesus is no less important than maintaining the Trinity and the unity of God, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, justification by grace and judgment according to works, and a host of other apparent paradoxes that we may be tempted to resolve by emphasizing one side of the truth over the other. He continues, to demand philosophical consistency is to carve the reality of God down to fit into our own, to our small world of thought, rather than to allow his revelation to stand and reform our own thinking. You might say paradox is the native language of Christianity. How can we become more fluent? It's appropriate, I think, to extend this metaphor of the language of paradox um, and turn to a literary dictionary for a definition. Mine defines paradox as the language appropriate and inevitable to poetry. Poetry works by contradictions, qualifications, by metaphor, wherein there are overlappings, discrepancies, and contradictions. Paradox is related to irony and to figurative language. The poet Christian Wyman notes that he turns to poetry to think through existential questions because poetry does not think through so much as undergo such questions. And I've been puzzling on that for quite some time. And I think, though, that this is what it means that poetry works by overlappings, discrepancies, contradictions. This is the nature of metaphor. To describe one thing in terms of another when it does not seem to be like that thing in any obvious way, and to discover just how right and illuminative that comparison is. That is the work of metaphor. Often, the discovery of the likeness is made after the metaphor is made. The metaphor leads the thinking, rather than the thinking leading the metaphor. Some examples of this that would be familiar to you, I think. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of God is like a net that people threw into the lake and gathered all kinds of fish. I love this metaphor in Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, Hurrahing in Harvest. And the azurous hung hills 
are his world-wielding shoulder, majestic. And I, I don't know, Nate, I thought of you with this poem. Um, Craig Arnold's Meditation on a Grapefruit. <laughs> to wake when all is possible before the agitations of the day have gripped you. To come to the kitchen and peel a little basketball for breakfast. <laughs> Poems longer than that. That's the beginning. Basketball for breakfast. So, okay, go back to that. So the paradox that is often uh, inherent in metaphors is the mainstay of poetry. There are other gifts from poetry that are pertinent to a consideration of the importance of paradox. As is also true for music, poetry has a special relationship with silence. Of course, poetry is speech, sound, verbal expression, but like music, poetry runs on this taut string between silence and sound. In our print-dominated culture, respect for silence in poetry is represented visually in the white space on the page. And respect for the words spoken out of silence and that flows back into silence is reflected in the density of language and the sensitivity to the relationship between the content and the form of the poem. In poetry, there's no fat to trim on the poem. Every word has earned its place, and every word carries its weight, even the title, when there is one. Christian Wyman's poem, Ten Distillations, which is a collection of ten two-line mini-poems, exemplifies this spare compression of language. Here are three of his distillations, which are all distillations, by the way, of theological conversations and ideas. Convert. What did he learn when he learned of his own bad heart? that scared and sacred are but a beat apart. Skeptic. His eyes were open, but his heart was shut. At the edge of every wonder, he said, but... (laughs) Natural theology... Dawn, light dew on the grass, the air cool, clear. Nothing more, nothing mere. That'd be great. They're all great. I really wanted to read all of them tonight. (laughs) 
Even the title, Distillations, captures the tension between speaking and being silent. A process of distillation involves a good deal of time, heating and cooling so as to purify, and alludes to the challenge so prevalent in contexts given to a great deal of talking about, in this case, God, in all our talking about what is being said. And perhaps even more to the point, what or who is being heard. Well, from the experience of writing poems, there's another paradox I'm learning, which is summed up well, if a bit paradoxically, uh, by this quip of Emily Dickinson's. I think I have that. Yeah, sorry. She says, It is true that the unknown is the largest need of the intellect, though for it no one ever thinks to thank God. We often think knowing is the great need of the intellect. Dickinson stands truth on its head, as Chesterton might say, and takes us deeper into the true nature of human intellect. It needs both to know and it needs the unknown. It needs opportunity to learn, to explore, to grow. It needs opportunity to come to the end of itself. Dickinson's wry suggestion that we should think to thank God for the unknown is a poignant call, I think, to some epistemological humility. We need to remember we are finite and that our apprehension of the truth is always partial and limited. Christian Wyman sums up this paradox of the human intellect in another of his ten distillations. This one I don't think I have for you on the screen, so listen closely. Knowledge. To touch the summit was to learn so much, among which there are summits you can't touch. The way to live, then, is not to not seek to know, to accept ignorance as bliss, as a life motto, nor is it to stop climbing mountains. But when the need to know forgets its need for the unknown, and even more profoundly, its need to be known, We risk intellectual and spiritual arrogance. We can be glutted, but never filled. We may be omnivorously voracious, but malnourished. Getting at this same paradox, but from the other side, 
N.T. Wright notes this. The purpose of an open mind, Chesterton said, is like the purpose of an open mouth, that it might be shut again on something solid. (laughs) Yes, we must be free to ask questions, but when we hear a good answer, we must be prepared to recognize it as such and not be so keen on keeping all the questions open that we shy away from an answer because we so like having an open mind. That is the way to intellectual as well as spiritual starvation. Paradoxes give us solid food that requires a good deal of chewing and a long time to digest. Well, I want to turn to Simon Peter, the rock and stumbling stone. And I want to share um, the first two of uh, five Peter poems that uh, we'll look at together tonight. These are poems um, through which I've been trying to better understand the gospel texts about these moments in Peter's journey with Jesus, and thereby hopefully better understand and participate in my own discipleship to Christ. I have always found the immediacy of the first disciples' response to Jesus' call to follow me simultaneously inspiring and really intimidating. On the one hand, I can read their response as indicative of Jesus' utter impressiveness and his authority. What else could elicit such an immediate and unqualified response? And on the other hand, I feel there's got to be more to the story. What's the internal journey of Simon Peter or his brother Andrew? Um, What is that journey that he was on and that together with the authority in Jesus' voice um, led to his ready response? As a fellow glorious ruin... I want to know more about what was going on in the disciples' hearts and minds. I believe the gospel writers intend for the first disciples' responses to Jesus' call to do their work on the reader, in this case me, by way of an implied question. And I take that question to be this. What would it take, and what does it take every day for me to follow Jesus so quickly, so readily? This is the question in the background of these poems. Uh, Each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe um, the first disciples call and the events that kind of lead up to it and then from it a little bit differently. 
And Luke gives the most detailed account and the most Peter-focused account. Um, And it's this um, gospel text that I have meditated on in these two poems. So just to give you, to remind you um, of the biblical context... At the end of chapter 4 in Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us of a Sabbath occasion of Jesus teaching in the synagogue, casting a demon out of a man, and then going home with a certain Simon. Simon's mother-in-law was found sick with a high fever. Jesus speaks harshly to the fever, and she is healed. Jesus then spends the rest of the day healing countless people with all kinds of diseases. And then he goes and continues preaching around the Judean synagogues. Then we read this in Luke 5. One day Jesus was standing beside Lake Genesaret when the crowd pressed in around him to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting by the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon, then asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, Row out farther into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped the nets and their catch was so huge that their nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they caught. James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought the boats to the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. So is this the same Simon who witnessed an exorcism and the healing of his mother-in-law? And who knows how many other people were these experiences tilling the soil of Peter's heart, so to speak, before Jesus called him to follow? (laughs) 
here in the room, you have the poems in print for you. This is the first one. Put out into the deep. How many evicted demons does it take to birth belief? Briefly, I was the backdrop. Hunger spurred, I cleaned the flawless nets that failed all night to haul a catch. Soon, my mother-in-law would be laying out breakfast, fever-free, humming. I coiled what I'd seen around my thoughts all night, her sharp intake of breath and rise to fall at your feet. Some demons like the heat. Others feast on the cold burn of an empty stomach, gnaw the brittle bone of fatigue. What would she say if I left you crowd-pinned to this shore? No demon likes a spotlight. With a word, you center-staged me. How could I know you knew better than I? What legion rides the deepest currents of unbelief? And we'll continue the second poem. Drop your nets for a catch. Pounding fists to thighs as if overtaken by surprise, you crow the joy of an afterbirth. The crowd ashore, mirrored in the catch, fish with faces of men, women in bright robes falling from delicate fins, tails split to toes treading the tide, Eyes blinking alive with lashes, crow's feet, mouths agape, grinning, teeth, tongues, testimony of a trade capsized. I fall prostrate, your laughter dousing me, near drowning me, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the paradox that is central to each person's conversion and their unfolding journey of discipleship is this, that God initiates and we must take initiative. Yes, there is something Peter knew about this Jesus And there was so much he didn't know about Jesus. And it's this ongoing discovery of who Jesus is and what this means for me that is the work of prayer. 
So I want to reflect some on the paradoxes I think that we often experience in praying and in trying to pray. In a helpful little edited volume of essays called Heresies and How to Avoid Them, theologian Stanley Hauerwas notes in the introduction, the testing of Christian speech is prayer. When I pray, when you pray, what are we doing? Are we speaking? Are we listening? And if we hear something, is it God? And how do I know that it's God? When I pray, am I talking about or to or with God? Am I praying for something or someone? Or am I praying to feel something or better, someone? Yes. The health and maturity of any relationship may well be shown by the ability to both converse spiritedly and to sit quietly in one another's presence. Similar to poetry's special relationship with silence, I believe prayer is about silence as much as it is about speaking. Or put differently, if prayer is to enter into the relational reality of life with God, then it's about speaking and listening. To pray is to affirm who God is to me and who I am to God. And that might take me shutting up. Prayer is how we practice our relationship with God and test our language for our faith. Last week, in his lecture on curiosity, Ben said, and I quote you, Ben, our theology will always be deficient until we pray. We do not need to get our theology all sorted out and fine-tuned perfectly before we pray. But it is also true that we can pray fervently to a God who bears little resemblance to the God of the Bible. So I think we can also say praying can reveal to us the deficiencies in our theology. This is why praying with scripture is so deeply helpful. And praying with others. In his poem, Footnote to All Prayers, C.S. Lewis expresses well this testing of our language about and for God in prayer. And he hones in on this Inevitable idolatry present in all prayer, unless, and it is such a pivotal unless in his poem, God's mercy prevails.
footnote to all prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow when I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus, always taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream, and all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts. Unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully beyond desert, and all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. Is God always bigger than the conception of God we have as we pray? Yes. Does God despise us in our self-deception or grudge our limping metaphors? No. More heartening words from Lewis. Be comforted, small one, in your smallness. He lays no merit on you. Receive and be glad. There is a moment in Peter's journey that I believe depicts this invitation to pray imperfectly. In Matthew 14, we find Peter and the other disciples in a real boat experiencing a real storm and Jesus walking across real wind-tossed waves to them. And I believe that Jesus also walks across the anxiety-swept waters of our hearts and minds, walks across the tumultuous and overwhelming waters of personal and interpersonal life, pandemic, uncertain futures, grief, failed relationships, thwarted hopes. And unlike a different occasion when Jesus' response to an overwhelming storm was to speak silence and stillness into creation, here Jesus welcomes us to walk across what is most definitely not a sure-footed path, on what is most definitely not solid ground. Can we be sure-footed on the crests and troughs of waves? 
Can we walk on solid, liquid ground? Yes. Maybe not for long. But yes. And only because Christ himself is the path and the very ground of being that we walk on. And because his grasp on us is quick and strong. read you again the gospel passage before I share um, the poem that I have written reflecting on this moment this is Matthew 14 verses 22 to 33 and this comes right after Jesus has fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They were so frightened, they screamed. Just then, Jesus spoke to them, Be encouraged. It's me. And in the Greek, he says, I am. Be encouraged. I am. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. As he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, You man of weak faith. Why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. This poem is... All of these poems, you may have noticed, are um, titled with Jesus' words. Come, you of little faith. A landscape makes its mark on you at the mercy of the wind, at the mercy of my faith. This sea grave passage is no warrior's pyre, but baptism by fire. 
the path between us evaporates. Your wind-whipped face shadowed by smoke. Everything I know, I learned too late. Walking across my world in a crucible of flame. Every step offers me up. Every step burns. I thought I knew these fickle waters, this wind-walloped land, God's other hand. The waves are a rod, leave welts. The waves billow smoke, choke. Your grip and lift hooks me. This landscape left me drowning, boat broken, ablaze in the dark of you. What do you make of Peter's two prayers? Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And, Lord, rescue me. Is there a spacious, paradoxical space for both exclamations in your prayers? Was Peter testing Jesus, who we might note doesn't reject the test, if that's what this is? If so, we should highlight that the test, if it's you, was immediately paired with a willingness to be tested. Command me to come to you on the water. And when Peter failed his own test... And when we fail our own tests, do we pray, Lord, rescue me? Well, we'll continue um, into this final section of the lecture, looking at two, uh, maybe one, it's kind of one as two, two crystalline moments strung together uh, in Peter's experience of the paradox that is at the heart of Jesus' nature and the conflicting paradox that's at the heart of his own nature. So I'm going to just go carry right on into another passage in Matthew 16. This is where Peter is named rock and stumbling stone. I'm going to read a bit further than you might expect because um, I I drew in some other things uh, into the poems. So this is Matthew 16, verses... Uh, 13 to 28. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. Or a stumbling stone to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I tell you that you are Peter, rock. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble. So, the fourth poem. But who do you say that I am? It's not a trick question or a riddle with its own line of logic. One part lion, one part lamb, heads or tails. The law and the prophets hung in the scales. One part father, one part son, 
The work of a line is never done, but dances as it darts. Your question is the twang of an arrow on the string. The target, my heart, Christ. It's a miracle to know my own thoughts and to know what they are not. The Christ crashes like a stone on the waters of my mind, explodes from my lips, sinks too fast to grasp, sends ripples in rings, will reach shores I've never seen. Christ, seismic overhaul, I'll never comprehend. When can you say you know a man? A man is always more than you can understand. Um, In his commentary on Matthew, Frederick Dale Bruner comments on Peter's confession, You are the Christ. He says, Peter understands the first half of the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the unique son of the God who both is and gives life. Peter is right on the person of Christ, but Peter still must learn the other half of the gospel, namely that through the work of Christ, God acts sufferingly, and not only triumphantly, that God speaks humanly, and only thus divinely. This is what the word nailed to wood will finally make clear. There the final words of God's Son will be, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hardly words expected from God's Messiah. Bruner goes on and says, It will not be easy to adjust to the fact that when the great God speaks, he, as it were, stutters. The crucified Christ, two words that at first collide, in both logical and religious consciousness, is a Christ who is not easy at first or even at length to grasp. And this last poem of the evening, Get Behind Me, Satan. You say, I am not myself, but a hindrance, fallen angel, up in arms, opposition, rock dumb, and just that strong. True, I wish to shield you from your own forecast. Who aims for defeat? For my soul, 
every fish laid at your feet. For my soul, the things of man, the work of nets, every grain of sand. But far be it from me to be more than who I am. I think I prefer your riddles. This undertow of simple speech runs me adrift. At sea and shipwrecked, my own name jutting, jagged, split. And again, I think Bruner's um, reflections on this moment is so helpful. He says, the contrast between Peter the rock and Peter the stone of stumbling should not escape the reader and instructs the church about her own dual nature. Jesus has two natures, divine and human. The church has two natures, God-used and devil-used. We learn from the whole history of Peter in Matthew 16 that in this world, the church is both Christ's main instrument and his main impediment. To S. Petrus, you are rocky. To S. Satanas, you are Satan. Both titles should be engraved on the Basilica of St. Peter's rather than just the present one, because both are true of the history of the Christian church. This is not a comforting paradox, but it is truth standing on its head to get our attention. So, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed as I imagine Peter must have felt with uh, the ruins part of being a glorious ruins. Well, this is, of course, not where Peter's journey with Jesus ends. In fact, the next thing we read about in Matthew's gospel is Jesus' transfiguration which includes tell of Peter getting it and not getting it. And Peter will go on to boldly declare that he will die for Jesus, but then he does the very thing that he said he'd never do and denies Jesus when the moment of truth comes. Not just once, but three times and fervently. And still Jesus does not give up on Peter. I want to end tonight with a final image, a metaphor not from poetry or prayer or the life of Peter, but from another P, uh, from pottery. <clears throat> Specifically from the Japanese kintsugi tradition the art of mending broken tea bowls. 
In his new book, Art and Faith, Makoto Fujimura expounds a theology of making. And in a chapter dedicated to the Kintsugi tradition, he recounts his experience of spending time with Kintsugi master Nakamura-san in his Tokyo workshop cafe called Sixth Dimension Cafe. So I would like to read uh, to you from Mako's book here at some length. After conversing for more than two hours that hot July afternoon, I began to have my own version of translating what sixth dimension meant for me. We live, let's say, in the third dimension, trying to deal the best we can with time and space. The idea of kintsugi mending, of restoring the broken tea bowl, then perhaps is the fourth dimension in which we move through our pain and trauma into a beautiful place. The fifth dimension in this scenario will be what Nakamura-san showed me next, an 18th century teacup mended with early 20th century fragments filed to fit the broken area. This is called yobitsugi, literally calling into mending. The work looked like a quilt with the bright patterns augmenting the old design. It's like a collage, I noted, feeling the edge of gold carefully mended and the teacup seemed to wink at me. In the days of post-colonialism, we need to find our own mending to be collage, a collage-like journey toward healing. The resulting patterns will not be by design to restore the old days of national glory, but a beautiful amendment that resonates under a master's hand. Yobitsugi can also mend the fissures of two warring nations. As in a video Nakamura-san created in which he mends together ceramic fragments from North and South Korea, or from Pakistan and India. With the edges matching the shapes of the country's geographic borders, and a river of gold flowing through them. Yobitsugi is a master art for peacemaking. But as he moved deeper into a cabinet that held many fragments to be repaired, Nakamura-san opened up a sixth dimension of kintsugi, I go to antique stores and look for very old objects that are broken, 
some of them shards like this. He handed me a green porcelain that seemed to be from 12th century China. I hold this broken shard and spend time imagining the bowl, he said. He then handed me an earthen vessel that was completely round on the bottom. When I held it in my hands, it felt almost like a small soccer ball, but had the warmth of rough-hewn clay. I tried to guess the age of the object and was astounded when he said, This is from the Joman period, roughly 10,000 years old. The vessel was broken in corners, but I could still sense the wholeness and the hand that had shaped it. It's amazing that something like this I look for and can afford because no one wants a broken pot. What is the sixth dimension? Well, it's the Kintsugi master searching for fragments and broken pots, not for the purpose of mending them, but for contemplation. In fact, when I held this earthen vessel, I was indirectly touching the hands that made this earthenware, hands that had nurtured and used the bowl every day. Perhaps you can feel the hands of Jesus. Kintsugi master extraordinaire holding the broken pieces of your life. Pieces that might reach back generations. Peter had a Kintsugi moment like this with the resurrected Jesus on the shore of the sea with yet another miraculous haul of fish around a charcoal fire. And the gospel writer, John, would have us make the connection. Peter had huddled near a charcoal fire when he adamantly denied Jesus three times. And now a charcoal fire over which Jesus stretches bread and fish breakfast. A solid answer to so many questions. Solid food to close the mouth around and chew, swallow. And after being fed, the repetition of the easiest and the most difficult question. Do you love me? To which Peter must finally reply, Lord, you know everything. And three times the fisherman is called to be a shepherd. Feed my sheep. And twice this would-be shepherd is told by the good shepherd, follow me. 
So I suspect even in those final uh, descriptions of Peter's story, you're hearing paradoxes at play. I have uh, offered you my basket of ingredients, poetry, prayer, a handful of poems. Um, I wonder what sort of rummaging the Holy Spirit has been doing in your pantries, your freezers. So uh, we can take a minute to just sort of stretch, sift your thoughts, and then I would be very happy to talk about anything that um, you would like to, that I've shared tonight, or uh, thought paths that this took you down, um, or other questions that you find coming up. And by all means, feel free to also head to bed if you are sleepy, and those of you joining us um, from afar, also thank you for coming tonight, and uh, feel free to head out or join us in conversation, type uh, questions or comments in, and Anna will field them, and, and we will enjoy talking with you in that way. Happy to talk about um, the poems as well. If you're, um, if you have questions or thoughts about that, I'm not. Um, that's fair game too, um, and and pushback as well, as we always like to welcome here at Labrie. Um, you don't have to readily eat everything that I fed you tonight. <laughs> What did he learn when he learned of his own bad heart that scared and sacred are but a beat apart? Well, they're a beat apart, so <laughs> not a lot of distance at least. <laughs> we can say that much. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and to um, think of uh, a heartbeat, you know, it's like scared, sacred, scared. Well, he's playing with the iambic pentameter here, like sacred, the beat, the heartbeat, and the, like uh, the rhythm of, of uh, the poetic <coughs> meter there, too, is uh, it's just masterful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think yeah. is the difference between scared and sacred? Well, I was just thinking about that original picture you put up with the glorious ruin. Mm-hmm. And for me, if I wanted to ruin, it feels more scared and sacred. Scared and sacred just like, like, you know, kind of, you know, maybe a little movie or haunted or something like that. Yeah. try to summarize it for those who are still listening online too um, yeah that scared and sacred are intertwined you don't sort of like get to shake off the scared and then just be sacred <laughs> glory <laughs> no ruin um, yeah and that experience I, I mean how many of you resonate with that I, I feel that when you're in an old place you're sort of intrigued and you want to explore it and your imagination can kind of take it back to its glory days. Funny that we use that phrase. Um, but there's a, a haunted feeling to it, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben. What comes to mind for me there is just the, the fear of God and the fear of the Lord. It's um, mm-hmm. scared. It's like Mm-hmm. Deeply sobered, mm-hmm. or something, uh, or in awe, or something like that, um, which in the presence of God maybe is as, as sacred as our hearts can be, you know, until mm-hmm. we're actually transformed by God. Yeah. Um, you think of even Peter's response during the miraculous catch. It's not, oh my gosh, look at all these fish, it's awesome. It, it's, um, uh, leave me alone. Go, go away. I'm or, sinner. Or yeah. Six. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yes, Clint. I've been looking into the difference between the Hebrew concept of the worldview versus that of the Greeks and maybe the Romans. It's been a really interesting topic for me lately. And the way you're comparing scripture with poetry, uh, a couple nights ago, was the last one? I know, it's been a good poetry week for you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like this, Mm -hmm. just reaching out for another word in in a line of poetry that doesn't really connect, but but presents what you're trying to say much better, is like a paradox. And the Hebrew worldview is more poetic than the Greek. And... I'm thinking that maybe this is kind of a better understanding of the way the way to handle paradox when you see the Bible written more poetically than you know, like prose or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mindset that went into it. Yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, maybe others can weigh in on that too. I. I know that. Um, the Hebrew word for word, davar, is also the word for thing. And so this tangibility that's like essential to their view of language as well um, is, is far more earthy and, and grounded, I think, than um, the Greek understanding, which mm. has sort of this increasing removal of the word from the thing and these sort of layers of reality. Yeah. Hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Anna. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Or, yeah. Yes, I think um, to, and, and to understand that, um, that poetry is a genre, but there's also a poetic mode that other forms of literature can take. And um, Scott Cairns is a poet who I think has written really helpfully, for me at least, on this. And, yeah, has uh, said, like, you, you encounter the poetic mode in a novel, for example, when suddenly you're not just, like, caught up in the story, but you're, like, paying attention to the language. And you're like wow, the way this has been said, this is so beautiful. Um, that's the poetic mode coming through in other forms of literature. And, yeah, and so that that we, <laughs> that, the, that the words themselves become opaque in the best sense, like they become a thing. You're not just looking through them as if they don't, you know, they're sort of incident, incidental. Um but you're you're encountering them. That I think is a good description of um, what poetry is is really trying to do with language. Language is poetry's first end, <laughs> like not the ideas that the language is conveying, but the words themselves. Um, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, Joshua. Let's get up just sort I often um, I think of like biblical studies and theology as being sort of very linear and um, uh, um, uh, very 
propositional, you know, and it's like it's doing history, it's it's excavation, and I think those are parts of it. But I, I've often found, and again, this could just be personal, that some of the best readers of scripture are people who understand poetry, who understand language, who love not just the message of scripture, but like the content of the message, but how the message was was given to us. So people mm-hmm. like Richard Hayes, or mm-hmm. people like Eugene Peterson, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. earlier earlier Christians like Augustine can't just mm-hmm. read everything he speaks is sort of poetic. And guys like <laughs> Lewis. Or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. So I just think those are the sorts mm-hmm. of they yeah. sort of get it on more than one level, not just like the content, but the yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't know, it's just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ben, you yeah, want to follow on that? Philippians 2, where it's, where it's, you know, which, you know, the section that, you know, we cannot consider equality with God, I think, the grass, but, but uh, which is, I, I think, I mean, maybe the biblical scholars can correct me, but I think is, is a lot of people think is an early hymn of some yeah. kind. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The hymn text. <coughs> and, uh, and I've, I've of the thought of that as like Paul's trying to communicate something about <clears throat> who Jesus is, trying to convince people to, to you know be able, be one with each other, be mm-hmm. trying to have the same mm-hmm. mind in Christ, and then he's just has to break into song. It's almost like <laughs> yeah. there's only one yeah. way to there's only mm-hmm. one way to to give this the the depth of meaning that it demands, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. this him. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. full of paradox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is very nature God, it can be something like a certain Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think um Joshua, one of the uh things that sort of a a mind or a sensibility that I think is is tutored by poetry and and like the way that literature works, uh, is maybe just ready to make associative connections and leaps that um, I think are, are there to be made um, but that you know well, there's repetition there's a re- there's a reappearance of certain images there's ways that language gets picked up and you know kind of turned on its side and presented again and so yeah I think those are. Um, sensibilities that get honed in the study and, and love of poetry and literature, for sure. Yeah. Anna? Yeah. Um, I know this is somewhat of a poetic meditation on Peter's words, so I don't want to be too particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you read or do you have thoughts about the distinction between like, you are Peter? Mm-hmm. And I guess even 
kind of say, he's the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Yes, the church can be an impediment too, but I wouldn't want to call the church Satan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think yeah. about the difference in even how he phrased that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Dale Bruner um, gets a bit more also into rock and that it's more you are rocky um, rather than like you're the rock, you know, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> you're rocky, rocky. Um, but I mean, uh, the church is built on Christ. Not on Peter, <laughs> you know, and so the church is built on Peter insofar as Peter is pointing to Jesus, and so like that's the rock likeness of Peter, um, and you know, and maybe similarly, um, you know, like the most. We see this all the time here, right? Like, the the biggest hindrances to faith is often church for people. Like, mm-hmm. the deepest wounds, the most, like, <laughs> devastating blows to people's faith come when the church is not what it's supposed to be. And so, that does strike me as sort of particularly of Satan to take the very people, the very means, the very, you know, thing that God would have extend himself into the world, you know, and just utterly thwart that. So I think there's reason to be really sober about both, both of those um, realities. Yeah, Ben? I mean, I agree it's shocking what, he, what Jesus says to Peter. Um, but I like what you, I like your observation. He doesn't say mm-hmm. you are Satan. He says get away yeah. Satan. And, and it's almost as if, I wonder whether he's actually talking to Satan. Mm-hmm. He's rebuking Satan because mm-hmm. Satan had tempted him with the very same thing, you know. In, in That's right, Yeah. You can have all this stuff just worship me now. Basically, avoid, you know, you have to say it explicitly. Yeah. But what he means is avoid the cross. Mm-hmm. You can do that. That's mm-hmm. a stupid idea. Yeah. You know, you can, you can have everything that's coming to you right now. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I don't know, more recently, um, that's how I started to understand him. Like he, he hears the same temptation. Mm-hmm. That Satan probably has been throwing at him every day yeah. of his life, knowing where he's headed, mm-hmm. knowing what he could avoid. And but this time he hears it in the mouth of his friend, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And how much uh, harder yeah. then to yeah. say, "Get behind me, Satan!" Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know. And in a sense, Jesus is also saying, "Follow me, Peter." Yeah. Like, remember that. You're supposed to fall. You're you're meant to be behind. Yes. You're not yes. meant to be taking the lead here. And maybe that's a helpful thing and thinking about. Yeah, for the for the church, like when the church is following Jesus, then she's imaging Christ in the world and is rocky, rock-like. Is the rock Petrus? Yeah, Clint. Think of the word Satan more as 
a title and a personal name, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, meaning rebel, mm-hmm. adversary, mm-hmm. maybe like rather than Satan, it's like the capital S and the same the small s. So in that sense, he's accusing Peter of being an adversary, yeah. not necessarily saying, you're possessed by the devil. Not really saying that at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he says, um, I mean, he says why he calls him that, right? Like, you are thinking about the things of man. You are a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. There's sort of a weird conflation there of, like, human thoughts and Satan, which is uh, struggling. But, yeah, like, I guess it's, I think, yeah, you're exactly right, Ben. Like, it's the temptation to do the glory, don't deal with the ruins. Like, do the, do the glory, let's skip the suffering. Um, which I think mm-hmm. Jesus experienced even on the cross. Like, if right. you figure out, come down. Yep. It's, it's something that's like relentless temptation every minute yeah. up until his death. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's amazing to me. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, Joshua. I, just, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to think about. Um, there's like different criteria by which some historians use to decide whether something, and there's more critical scholars decide if something is authentic mm-hmm. in the New Testament or if it's just made up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially because of the role Peter plays in Acts and then in sort of extra biblical maybe more Roman Catholic in particular, like, education, mm. mm-hmm. you know, this is the first pope, like, the fact that he'd even be recorded uh, saying something like this, or being called this mm-hmm. by Jesus makes it, like, one, uh, just highly believable yeah. uh, to folks. But I think it just, it shows that, like, um, it's believable, because it's, like, the first heretic in the New Testament is the first leader. Right. Will, will become the first like, leader of the church or first pope. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, so Bruner is funny on this. He's yeah, like, well, yeah. there you have it. The first pope is fallible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like some it's good terrible. Protestant cheekiness <laughs> 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 like, interpretation. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I just, it's just quite a striking yeah. thing, and it feels, it feels uh, like a, quite a big statement from Jesus. Yeah. Not something you would throw around lightly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know. Yes, the question um, from online, thank you, is about the sixth dimension. I don't know if I can explain it <laughs> anymore either. I... Um, uh, yeah, it's where where it um, leads me. Uh, the thought path it takes me down is um, <clears throat> well. I guess the question I I feel left with at the end of my own lecture <laughs> is um, you know sort of this question of like what's the what's the future glory. If, if we see glorious ruins, 
is there a vision of future glory that we get to glimpse now? Um, and I think the Kintsugi tradition has something of that in its, in its imagination, that what is broken doesn't simply get chucked in the rubbish heap, but it gets mended with gold, which makes it even more valuable than it originally was. It is recognizable as what it was, um, but it is now more than what it was originally, too. And, yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's interesting that, um, and maybe, maybe Makoto Fujimura didn't talk to this Kintsugi master about, like, what exactly do you mean by calling your studio the Sixth Dimension Cafe? But it does seem like, um, yeah, there's, there's this invitation to imagine something, um, that takes us beyond the, as he puts it, the the three-dimensional, well, we're dealing with space and time, and we drop things, and maybe that's the end. Maybe there's something more there than the fourth dimension of this mending. Um, So I do think it's interesting, and I'm curious how this kind of sits with you all, that the sixth dimension which it feels like each dimension is sort of upping the ante as he describes this. Um, you know, this, this individual mending of a bowl and then this mending across time of something from the 18th century mended with the 20th century pieces, this peacemaking, geographical mending um, of shards from different places. Then this uh, turn where the sixth dimension is the Kintsugi master finding, seeking out lost, old, seemingly worthless things to simply hold and have and and consider. Um, like there's something deeply beautiful <laughs> about that to me that um, speaks of Jesus being the one who would seek out the one lost sheep. Um, and yeah but I wonder what you all think too about um, it's not to then try to mend it but it's simply to hold it um, to con- he, Mako uses to contemplate to contemplate this um, pot is it like to imagine it is that part of the dimension is the holding or is it yeah, yeah, yeah. Anna asked, "Is it the holding that is the sixth dimension, or is it the contemplating?" I think they go hand in hand, the holding and the contemplating. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he Mako kind of interprets it this way: the ultimate act of a kintsugi master is not to even attempt to fix the broken vessel, but to behold its potential, to admire its beauty. And he asks this question, what kind of a church would we have, I wondered, as I rode the commuter train back to Sinjuku Station, if we sought the sixth dimension in our churches? What kind of church would we become if we simply allowed broken people to gather 
and did not try to fix them, but simply love and behold them, contemplating the shapes and broken pieces, sorry, contemplating the shapes that broken pieces can inspire. Um, And there's something both, I think, um, there's a corrective, a needed corrective there, um, but there's also something in me that isn't satisfied (laughs) with that. Um, And I think he, the corrective he's offering is, uh, he, he talks about, um, what does he call it? Plumbing theology. <laughs> but sort of this like, now that you're here, let's fix you up, um, kind of way of treating people in churches. Um, and yeah, so I think he's trying to put the brakes on a lot of quick fixing that I think can happen in church communities, in all sorts of communities. Not Church doesn't <laughs> have the market on this. There's all sorts of, like, let's fix you up and get you um, shinier programs out there. So, yeah, I think he's, he's putting the brakes on that and saying, let's encounter, deeply encounter people first for who they are and... Um, and maybe again, it's sort of uh, a choice for some humility of like, all right, things aren't going to be perfectly fixed right now. And a lot of our quickness can maybe do more harm in the process. And there's a work of, a work of restoration that belongs to God only. So. Those are just some of my, yeah. Yeah, Marty. Um, I was just thinking of a, there's a guy named William Hodges who was a, um, a missionary doctor in Haiti for many, many years who we stumbled across just crazily from a neighbor and Dick corresponded with him. He sent his newsletters. He's an amazing Renaissance thinker. He reminded us a lot of, of Schaefer, but what mm-hmm. he... What he did, it, he, he was a doctor and ran a hospital and with patient, patients from all voodoo traditions and everything in, mm-hmm. in Haiti. But one of, the, one of the things he did is he, um, he started a museum of Haitian culture and he, what he did, he asked his, his patients, many of them were farmers, you know, anything you find in your field, bits and pieces of broken things. Hmm. Bring them in, hmm. and and then the mu- he made a museum of all these things, broken yeah. pots, whatever, yeah. and over the top in French, you know, mm-hmm. man in the image of God, hmm. made, in of God. made made in the image of God hmm. was, the, was mm-hmm. the title of the museum. It was uh-huh. a, it was I mean it was wow. a tremendous sort of statement of Christian truth into this very needy culture and, and mm-hmm. the farmer said well why do you want this stuff well, you know why do you want some old broken pot or this or that but mm-hmm. it was it, it was fantastic yeah, um, you know, yeah. It, it did for Haitian culture and just mm. you are image bearers of God and all the people that made these pots however mm-hmm. long ago were image bearers mm-hmm. of God and, mm-hmm. and um, yeah know, one of the, one of the yeah. things that I would I mean I don't have mm. any idea what the sixth dimension is but <laughs> <laughs> but just the, that these broken things were made yeah. by 
human beings yeah. made in God's image, mm-hmm. mostly to be serviceable, but also to be to be beautiful. And what, yeah. what is this thing you heard recently? Of, um, um, you mentioned it on the news, but some cave paintings somewhere that are more ancient than even the ones that... They found in Indonesia, I think, mm. twice as far back as the southern France and, and Spain yeah. cave paintings and pa- mm. painting of a pig and and, uh, and a handprint mm. next to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. just... But... but, but um, they, they can date it by the sort of stalactites and stalactites in the caves, uh-huh. and and there is a there's a a um, can't how they, somehow they, they did it because there's a dripping across the painting of the pig, mm-hmm. which they can date. Hmm. So it's got to a, the painting uh-huh. must have happened before that happened uh-huh. to it, uh-huh. uh, and hmm. they, they think it's ten thousand years old. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. But to me, that would be a, that would be my sixth dimension. I don't know what he's saying, but to yeah. hold something that old that a human being has worked on. Yeah. I mean, we our kids weirdly uh, playing around Greenwich when we lived there mm-hmm. discovered you, you had to be under eight to discover one of these things, <laughs> which is a, a, a flint axe head yeah. uh, that was buried in the in the irrigation ditches. Uh-huh. And we they were much better than what they had in the local museums. But they said it was probably four thousand years old. Wow. Uh, chipped. Beautifully. Absolutely beautifully chipped. Condition. Very, very sharp. But you hold it in your hands. Mm-hmm. Good grief. Yeah. Look at what was done then. Look at what has happened since. Mm-hmm. Look at what the, the Generations that have come and gone mm-hmm. over this. And mm-hmm. It's 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 got to be a humility somehow in just yeah. holding on. Never mind whether it's broken, you can fix it or not. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a, just a busted piece of something, but it was a piece of pottery umpteen thousands of years ago, and yeah. someone cooked up something in it. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it to me, that's a, a <laughs> smack mm-hmm. uh, uh, to be to be humble and, and yeah, to, yeah, and to just be in wonder. Yeah, that that's helpful. I mean, it makes me think if the sixth dimension is is this space for the kintsugi master, like whose work it is to fix things yeah. <laughs> all day long, beautifully, artfully fix yeah. them, like then maybe this practice of holding something that is so ancient is is a practice of it's a bowing <laughs> a bowing with humility before work that has just come so far before you yeah yeah sorry dave yeah yeah I, yeah i mean i love this image mm. just um prepared bowl yeah uh, i wonder like if you yeah think back to like what you said holding this bowl mm-hmm like just recognizing the words of this bowl um, before it's even fixed, thinking of yeah. being an image bearer. Yeah. Like you, I don't get value once I'm fixed, but mm-hmm. I have this intrinsic value already, yeah. even when it has a glorious ruin. Mm-hmm. And, and because I have that value, um, mm-hmm. I'm worth fixing too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and of course, that full restoration mm-hmm. there isn't going to happen until the next stage. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, of course, in this age, you only get partly repaired. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. yeah, because 
where if we have that value, we want to mend people. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. But I, I would think that I would sort of that initial like holding that piece, yeah. just paying attention to that value mm-hmm. before anything even begins mm-hmm. in restoration. Mm-hmm. That, that would be an important mm-hmm. part. I wonder, mm-hmm. and, and maybe because he does that, he can do this kind of work. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of like uh, the work of authenticators. Like the way that they train themselves is to know the real thing so well that that it's just easy to spot a counterfeit, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, like, there's something analogous, I think, in in this type of craft work, like. You know so well <laughs> what it feels like, what it looks like, you know, um, that to anybody else's eye, it's like, oh, well, that seems fine. Or, you know, they know what what really needs to go into something. Um, yeah, I think um, it's interesting. He footnotes... Um, their, his attempts to do kintsugi workshops in the U.S., and they just can't find enough broken pottery because everybody throws everything out. And um, so I think it is a particular word <laughs> for our culture, um, you know, to, to well, one, like, I mean, your lecture on fixing things, too, you know, Ben, I think is important like to consider repair <laughs> before we check something um, but like if we treat things that way so casually how does that not creep into how we treat people too and so or the idea of yeah. designer babies to, right so that right Create children with no flaws. No flaws. No. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, yeah. It, like this artwork is a total contrast to say a Thomas Kincaid mm-hmm. painting, yes. where it's yes. like oh. there's he's trying to paint without the fall. Yeah. But this is like this is restored creation. Yeah. Like this yeah. bears witness to that creation is fallen. Mm-hmm. It's only going to be redeemed. It's not the fall isn't. Yeah. Um, non-existent. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think this is this is one of the most beautiful representations of mm-hmm. uh, redemption. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. In, in total contrast to Thomas Kincaid. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He doesn't even have any naked people back Yeah, Marty. It's making me wonder. Um, how, I mean, in in the new heavens and and new and new earth and in the redeemed creation, the new when Jerusalem comes mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. and we are restored. But how, in what way, if and how, our previous brokenness may be may still be shown in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in us, in yeah. our natures. You know, we will mm-hmm. be without sin. We will be without, mm-hmm. um, without all those effects of the fall. But you just wonder mm-hmm. whether there won't be some indication of what's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of, of how we've been mended. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just, yeah, just looking at those pots, maybe, yeah. maybe wonder, yeah. wonder that. 
yeah, I, I yeah. If anybody's still with us online, Marty's wondering about the way in which um, the marks of our brokenness and the marks of um, yeah, our our brokenness will still remain even in the healed, yeah, restored new the new heavens and the new earth. And um, yeah, I think um, I mean because our our the gold <laughs> in our, uh, the bowl of our being like that is the blood and tears and you know of Christ. And so I think like there's something about Christ's glory that is at stake in evidencing mm-hmm. our heal, our healing, our yeah. mending, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that those things are um, going to be kept intact mm-hmm. together somehow. But with no, without shame. Right, yeah, no shame. It's hard to, to, to fathom. Yeah. You know, the things we're ashamed of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm rightly ashamed mm-hmm. of I mean, I, this is all, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. Wonderings. Pretty rough. What happens to the human body, though? Yeah. <laughs> Many oh, yeah. people's lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Think of the uniqueness of the wounds of Christ in the yeah. risen. I mean, mm-hmm. the risen Christ mm-hmm. had wounds. Yes. And, yes. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but mm. I hope we don't all bear the bashed upness that we. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think yeah. that's, well, that's right. Right. These wounds were unique. They were. Hmm. Yeah. What if our scars <laughs> are like gold? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The crowns. Yeah. Some people will be solid gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ben, did you have a thought on that too? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's maybe just like, <laughs> could it be our our unique scar, whatever they are. Um, scars or, or the results that our own sin have had on us, you know, but but we've been redeemed, we've been healed, but that seems to me that those, whether they're, you know, visible in our resurrected bodies or invisible aspect of who we are, uh, will be a part of the story we tell about our redemption, will be part, will be part of the, will be like... Yeah. An aspect of the gratitude we have yeah. to Christ yeah. will yeah. be, will be right. a, something about the uniqueness of uh, that it was me that was saved by, by mm-hmm. God, and, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe be a unique part of the wisdom that we mm-hmm. have. Yeah. Long, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of the um, mm-hmm. the horse and his boy. Uh, there's an interesting like throwaway line in there where Edmund is now the king, but when he was a kid, he was one to portray them all, and, and was responsible for Aslan going to yeah. die, you know, like, he yeah. was really the, um, screwed up pretty hard, um, but interestingly, he's, he's known as Edmund the Wise later on, and there's this, and there's this moment where he uniquely chooses to show mercy to this total traitor that's trying to kill them all, and, and uh, Mm-hmm. And there's, I don't even remember what the line is, but it says something, something about how, like, he, 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 uh, he remembers his own, like, yeah. he, he had a memory of yeah. himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that stuck with me as being mm-hmm. like, well, what, that's, that's the, maybe the redeemed scar that Edmund mm-hmm. has carried mm-hmm. since he betrayed them all as, as, a, as a boy. Yeah. Like, it actually is, yeah, it's not, 
the, the bad thing that he did isn't somehow good now. Yeah. It's right. still it's still his sin, you know. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he was redeemed mm-hmm. uh, and reinstated um, means that that experience has led to his with deeper wisdom. Yeah. Like, and yeah. He's, he's, which is mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. deeply helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I just, um, yeah, glad for that example. Mm-hmm. Ben mentioned uh, Edmund in The Horse and His Boy uh, a moment, and for those who are still listening here. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's what has intrigued me about Peter and Paul. <laughs> like, like, I just want to... Like know everything I can about these particular stories because you know if 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 mine is you know certainly mine's going to be something in that ballpark as a fellow human <laughs> you know and if their great great flaws are memorialized in scripture you know like that has to then set my expectations <laughs> of what, for good and for ill of like what my life will look like with Christ too um, that's I mean that's helpful to me at least you know? and it, yeah and just to see Peter it, it's like when Peter said you are the Christ, Jesus lavished affirmation on him, you know, and so I think, like, I don't think Jesus told Peter things, you know, sort of just because, like, he must have said those things because Peter needed to hear those things, too, Um, and maybe Peter also needed to hear, get behind me, Satan, (laughs) to be a leader, to be the leader that he then, you know, was. And, yeah, I mean, just this pattern in Peter's life of getting it and then big time dropping the ball. Post-Pentecost, you know, Paul's rebuke of Peter. And so, I don't know, that is, that tempers, I think, my default like just want to get to the spot that is a rival (laughs) I want to get where there's no more slippage and there Mm -hmm. but I don't I don't actually get to expect that (laughs) Um, thank you all so much